yeah, do you walk into places and people look at you because you're black and you may be the only one? I mean, we, we all get that look, right? So did I get that then? Absolutely, but I didn't really care. This podcast is created in partnership with Breakthrough. My name is Lauren Stockman-Brown. I'm going to be your host today. Thanks for tuning in. So Kat, if you would introduce yourself, your name, your age, if you feel comfortable, your race, your pronouns, and your gender. Yeah, so hi, I'm Katrina Adams. I'm a former professional tennis player of 12 years. I'm 52 years old. I'm the past chairman, president, and CEO of the United States Tennis Association. I'm the current vice president of the International Tennis Federation. I am a uh, commentator, a co-host, and an author. And I am a female uh, woman, she. Awesome. I read an incredibly interesting statistic that talked about how, which is not a surprise, but the majority of people who play tennis are white and from upper middle class families. So for you, when you speak about your socioeconomic background um, and we think of the sport of tennis, how did you first get into playing a sport like this? You know, I got really lucky. Um, it was a summer program that my brothers were in. Uh, there was, it was a program that was sponsored by the boys club. It wasn't the boys and girls club then, just the boys club. Um, and every summer they had a different activity. That summer was tennis. And mm-hmm. I was a tag along sister. My, my brothers, again, it was for nine, 18 year olds. I was only six. So I was kind of tagging along, watching them from outside the fence for a couple of weeks. And I was begging the uh, instructors and my parents daily because I was the ultimate tomboy. I could play any sport. I could pick up anything. And I was a visual learner. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't understand why I had to sit on the outside of the fence. <laughs> so uh, after badgering the coaches and my parents, they finally let me participate a couple weeks in and, you know, I picked up the racket, hit the ball over the net in the court and I was hooked. And, and so, you know, as I said, I'm a visual learner. I knew what not to do watching everybody else and figured out what I needed to do. And then the uh, coaches that were there thought I had potential uh, one of them took me under his wing. Once the school season started, we started playing like on Saturdays once a week, mm. which led to the following summer, which was a summer camp type, you know, day camp of tennis, um, played in that and then started going into programs. And, and actually my first tournament was the ATA Nationals. So my, my initial yeah. program was all black. The coach was black. The, the winter program that I started doing was black. The summer program was black, the following summer. And then the first tournament I played, ATA Nationals, which is the, the oldest black um, organization in mm. sport, was black. And so I thought it was wow. a black sport. I had no idea <laughs> that, you know, it, that, that it was ultimately, quote unquote, a white sport mm-hmm. um, until I started playing competitively and entering, mm-hmm. you know, the local tournaments and what we call district tournaments, Chicago District Tennis Association. And then I ultimately went to sectionals, nationals, et cetera. So I had no idea that, you know, it wasn't a black sport for like the first two years, which I thought was pretty That's cool. That's pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah, yeah. So then let's focus on the gender piece of this too, right? So you talked about how you were a tomboy and you play a lot of different sports and you just picked them up easily. Yeah. Um, and I was a former athlete as well, which of course, you know, because you coached me for a bit of time. Um, what was it like trying to deal with 
or facing certain stigmas that come with being at, you know, once you got further into the league, a professional athlete, um, do any stigmas get put onto you before you were even in the corporate, on the boards, anything like that, just in the arena? Right. What were the stigmas that you faced as a woman of color? Well, that's a very good question. I think, you know, once I got on tour, um, played on the WTA tour for 12 years, you know, I was very lucky. I had uh, a professional at the time, Zena Garrison, who was top 10 in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, well-established pro, had been the number one junior in the world. Uh, she was from Houston. We ended up playing doubles for like four years of my career. Um, but I was when I came on tour, I shared her coach, and a black guy. Mm-hmm. And so she kind of took me under her wing, kind of mentored me, uh, coached me through the, the pathway, if you will, of being a professional tennis player. And so I didn't go out there blindly. Um, you know, I had someone that I could lean on, that I could talk to, that, that um, you know, we played doubles with, we traveled together. So that was a great, that was a great opportunity for me. And I didn't even know it then. Mm-hmm. It's when I looked back on it that I realized how fortunate I was. Because I think if I'd gone out on tour by myself and had to navigate the waters, it could have been a little different, a little uh, different. Mm-hmm. for me. But because my personality is what it is, and I'm pretty damn confident, um, <laughs> and, and some even say cocky, you know, I didn't really Nothing care what, <laughs> yeah, I didn't really care what arena I was in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was there to, to own that arena, to, to make my way and, and basically, you know, hope to accomplish whatever the other player was hoping to do, which was win the tournament, um, week in and week out. So mm-hmm. it wasn't so challenging for me, um, I wasn't, I never really felt that I was in, yeah. Do you walk into places and people look at you because you're black and you may be the only one? I mean, we, we all get that look, right? So did I get that then? Absolutely. But I didn't really care. So, um, I didn't have, I didn't have any fear or, or really, um, any ill thoughts, if you will, um, that were so negative that I couldn't focus or that it impacted what I was there to do. Got it. Very well. And that, and that was more so like in restaurants and, and, and maybe some of the private clubs, hmm. um, but not so much in the tournament atmosphere. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So as you're getting further into your career at that point in time, um, and people like Serena Williams are, you know, becoming on the forefront, how did seeing someone who is black and female become so visible and mainstream? What kind of impact did that make on you as you were becoming more invested in tennis and in your career in that field? Well, even when I was on a tour, I mean, I was still playing when Venus and Serena came out. Venus came out in 94 and, and Serena joined the tour in 96. So I didn't retire until the end of 99. So I had the opportunity to watch them um, play against them and travel with them and get to know them as, you know, young, um, beaded, braided, you know, girls that were out there dropping beads everywhere. And I, you know, for us, it's like, <laughs> this is awesome. This is so cool because, <laughs> because it really did spark a conversation in the tennis world who didn't know what to do with that, you mm-hmm. know, and didn't these beads and braids flying all over the place and, you know, <laughs> beads breaking on the court. And, and, you know, so it sparked up conversation that commentators didn't really know how to handle because they didn't have any experience with it. But it also sparked up the entire, you know, another conversation of, you know, here are these two black girls coming on tour, kicking ass, 
-hmm. and eventually ascending to number one and two in the world, like their father said. You know, I had I had Zena and Lori and Camille Benjamin right when I went out on tour, and then it was kind of me, and then it was Jerry Ingram, Stacey Martin, and then Chanda Rubin came along, you know, and Chanda was much younger. And so I kind of felt like the godmother of Chanda when she came out because she came on tour at like 15 or 16. I think she was 15. Uh, and even with Venus and Serena, I kind of felt like a mother hen out there protecting. So as they ascended and, and you know, Chanda started winning and then Venus and Serena winning, you know, it was a proud mo moment to be able to see these black girls in the later stages of the tournament representing an entire culture. Because because we're so few, we, we you know, there is an, an added pressure on us because we realize that we are playing for everyone else that looks like us because there's so, so few of us in our sport. Okay, so let's dive into you being an author. Own the Arena by Katrina Adams. Can you tell us a bit about it? What it was like writing something like that and what inspired you to write that book? So, um, you know, it's really to inspire uh, women in particular, but, you know, everyone, men, women, uh, young people, older people, whoever is trying to find that uh, inspiration that's going to help them get to the next level. And, and so when I talk about owning the arena, it's, it's really your, your room is your arena, your office is your arena, your, your stage is your arena. Whatever that is, it's your arena, however small or large it is. But you have to have the confidence and the presence of mind to own it when you're there. Um, you know, too often we talk about being the only woman at the table. Well, you know what? Don't just be the only woman at the table and be grateful that you're at the table, meaning a board table, boardroom. But own the table. Make sure that you're prepared, that, you know, your voice is heard. Own your voice. Own your identity. Uh, you know, own your network of people that you are associating yourself with um, to be more knowledgeable, to advance. Uh, own your village, you know, your village or your family and friends, those that are there no matter what. Um, mm -hmm. And then it gives you some, you know, some some examples or experiences that I did. It talks about the um, the finals of 2018 with Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams, what transpired there you know, how my involvement, um, how I was portrayed at that moment or following that moment, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of ins and outs, but, you know, I'm excited. It drops February 23rd, uh, 2021 uh, by HarperCollins um, Publishing under the Amistad book, Books branch. So, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled. After hearing so, much, so many amazing things that you've been able to do, I want to talk more about your roots um, figuratively and, you know, actually. So we're yep. going to jump into the conversation of black hair. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if you could start by sharing what was your relationship to your hair growing up as an athlete, um, but also just growing up as a, as a black woman in Chicago? Yeah. So, I mean, when I grew up, my hair was, uh, basically natural and it was pressed with a hot comb, uh, <laughs> up until I was probably maybe 12, um, 11 or 12, and, and only did I get a relaxer or perm uh, then because I was uh, because I was the athlete and I and I'm a person that perspired from the scalp down. 
So my head was wet every time and my mom was like, okay, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, you got to get a relaxer. <laughs> and, you know, from that point, I, you know, I started pulling the back in a ponytail and you started to adapt to those that you're around, right? So mm-hmm. you're slicking it back, you've got the ponytail. I was no longer wearing the two plaits that I would normally wear. Every now and then I would kind of corn roll the two big ones um, myself. But, you know, it was about getting bangs and, you know, cutting the bangs and, and, mm. and trying to assimilate to my peers that I'm now playing uh, with and against in tennis that did not look like me. Uh, you know, you start pulling it up at the top and trying to let it hang low, but our hair doesn't really <laughs> flow. So it's basically sticking out in the back. I saw some, <laughs> I found some pictures recently. I was like, OMG, what was I doing? <laughs> Oh my God. So, you know, it was, it was, I went through that phase. I think we all did. Um, And uh, a couple of times on tour, I did get um, braid extensions. So, uh, you know, that was kind of cool for me. And maybe I don't, I may have only done it two or three times, Mm -hmm. but uh, it worked because it was just easy maintenance for me, particularly when I was abroad. You know, when you're in Europe and I'm on the road for four or five, six weeks, I'm not really getting a relaxer um, abroad. So, you know, you you learn, I learned very young um, how to maintain my hair, particularly abroad from shampooing it to blow drying it, you know, to wrapping it, whatever the process became as I got older and with, based on the hairstyle that I got. Um, but it was challenging because it was, you know, I wanted to make sure that every time I went out that I was presentable, whatever that meant at that mm-hmm. time of my, of my um, life. Uh, age-wise. And, you know, even even still, you know, I look at when I was a president of the USTA in front of a camera every single day on a stage or, or what have you, you know, mm-hmm. I made sure that I was completely pulled together every time because at the end of the day, image is what people see and that's how they're going to refer to you. And if, if I was out of line, remotely out of line, that would be what the focus would be on is I can't believe she got out there looking like that or what is she wearing or why is her hair like this or blah, 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 which would take focus off of the content of the speech or the appearance. So uh, yeah, it's it's a labor of love and hate when it comes to hair at times. Um, But I think to each his own as to how what's important to us, what look is it is that we want to uh, achieve and own it, you know, own your look, own your identity. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, wearing your hair natural, um, wearing your hair with braids or, or locks um, or, or with a perm. Hmm. So I want to dive into what you said about presentable, because I think there's often these undertones that are now being talked about in 2020 of what presentable really means. Um, so when you talk about it, was there like a journey of understanding what your presentable means versus everyone else's? Or did you always have this idea of I'm just going to look like myself versus conform to what my audience thinks is presentable, which may then reflect more Eurocentric beauty standards or ways of presenting and looking? Yeah, I mean, for me, it was really about it was really about myself as to what my personality was at that time. So you know, I was proud when I was wearing, um, you know, braid extensions. I was proud when I was wearing my hair uh, naturally wavy. Um, and I'm proud that, you know, when I have the, the, the fly haircut that I have right now. 
So uh, for me, it's making sure I need to look in the mirror and say, I'm pleased with what I see. So it doesn't matter if it's natural or straight. As long as I'm happy with how I look, that's the most important thing. Because no matter how good you think you look, there's someone else that's going to be out there, you know, saying something negative. So you can't, you can't live with that. And I think, you know, I admire all of my sisters that are out there that are wearing their hair natural, whether it's naturally wavy, whether it's an Afro, whether it's locks, whatever it is, as long as it, it's pleasing to them and that they are confident in their own skin and their ability to do their job, who cares? I was reading an article that NBC wrote. Um, it was an opinion article explaining Naomi and Serena's relationship to their hair on the tennis court. Um, and I'm wondering, since you've been watching these conversations unfold for the last, you know, over 20 years now, um, what it has been like perceiving the conversation change. Like even now you're saying, I don't know what to call it. Like, is it unfeminine to have long hair? But, it's, you know, you're thinking twice about like, is that the right term, right? Right, right. Um, and I think we're all starting to do that. So what is it like as a professional coming, coming, seeing a coming of age of these social advocacy topics um, and seeing NBC news writers write an opinion piece about Naomi Osaka's hair? Yeah, so I actually missed that article, but I think it's great. Um, listen, Naomi is Naomi. Um, you know, she's half half Asian, half Japanese, half Haitian, um, who identifies as black, as we've all seen, which is great <laughs> because she's a black woman first, is what she what in her terms. Mm -hmm. um, before she's a tennis person, tennis player. Before she's even Japanese, you see a black woman, and I think for her to take ownership in her identity um, and her looks is great. Um, her hair is her hair and it's her natural color and it's a, a beautiful head of wavy hair. And I think, I think she wears it well. Um, so I'm not even sure why they have an opinion on what her hair is because, you know, mm. it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, so since we're on Naomi now, watching Naomi wear the different masks, Ahmad Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, so on and so forth, having their parents come forth and be like, that means the world to me, that you are representing my child on national television. And you were there. You were, you were leading those conversations. What was that like? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, the first conversation I got into was when Francis Tiafo reached out to me a couple months ago and he did the Rack Is Down, Hands Up uh, video on social media. Um, after Mr. Floyd's death. And, and so that's, for me, it's actually probably the first time I've actually participated in something like that. With, that was a strong statement. But um, at the time, you know, if not now, when? And so it's never too late to get into the conversation and, and really start to talk about the importance of these topics. So, um, you know, so to see Naomi come out at the open the U.S. Open with the first mask on Brianna Taylor. I was like, I was like, what? I was like, <laughs> oh my god, oh wow. So I'm like taking pictures of the screen, you yeah. know, and and I'm posting it. So every day that every time she played, I'm taking a picture and posting it in the hashtag and the name and and what have you. So you know that's huge. That's huge in a in you know in our space in tennis that is majority white for this young 22-year-old Black woman to come out and use her platform. And, you know, after her first match, she said, I brought seven of them and I intend to wear them. 
takes seven mm -hmm. matches to get to the finals of the U.S. Open, and of which she wore all seven and then actually won. So it was a powerful statement that she made, not to just the world, but to other individuals to know that they can use their voice to make a difference. And, you know, and I, and I love at the end of her, um, in the trophy ceremony, the question that was asked to her, what was the message, message you wanted to send, Naomi? She says, no, 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 no. The question is, um, well, what was the message that you got? What was the message that you got? She flipped it back on him because it's like, the point is to make people start talking. I made a message. My message every day was coming out here and supporting these lives who were taken, wrongfully taken, um, you know, over the years. And to see the interview where two of the parents were on there, I couldn't hold back my tears when I was watching. And I could see she was starting to tense up and she did a great job of of not bawling on the set, but it would have even been better if she had started bawling on the set to mm -hmm. show her true emotions of how much that meant to her that those parents were reaching out and congratulating her, et cetera. So I'm proud of Naomi. Um, she's not gonna stop. Um, she's, uh, you know, she's, she's her own boss and she's proving that she can be a voice off the court and still go on the court and perform. No, I really love that. So if you go further into this intersection of social advocacy, which is happening, I think, because of the increase of energy behind the Black Lives Matter movement, we're in a pandemic, um, there's time and there's a level of effort that is happening in response to this. Um, so the intersection of social advocacy, Black hair, and sports. What would you say is that, that major tie between these three topics? Well, I think sports is what bring, brings people together. So, um, you know, it's a release for everyone, whether they uh, are an athlete or not. They, they love watching sports, no matter what that individual sport might be, whether it's basketball, football, tennis, baseball, boxing, doesn't matter. It's, it's a natural outlet for people. And, and I think when we look at the advocacy that's, that's in play right now from all of these athletes from around the world. It's not just here in the U.S. It's global. We've got all of our soccer friends and, and basketball friends abroad that are kneeling and wearing Black Lives Matter shirts um, mm -hmm. in support of, of our struggle here in America and abroad, because it's not just here. It's also abroad in other countries as well. It's just, it's just not as blatant or overt as it is here in the U.S. And they're not dealing with the certain types of crimes that we're dealing with uh, against Black lives. So everyone has, these athletes are using their platforms to speak about these injustices and, and people are listening. And I think that's the most important thing. People are listening, they're talking about it because if they're not talking about it, then they're not, they're not woke in my opinion. Um, and, and if we're not talking about it, we can't start moving towards healing and, and changing. Um, you know, we have to be accountable for our actions and changing our behaviors. And the only way we can do that is to communicate what it is that we're trying to say so that we can have end results. And I think that's where all of those come into play. Do you think there is a generational difference in how we discuss social advocacy topics in sports activism in general? So 2020 versus when you were in the arena in the 90s, you know, are there some things that you wish you added to your book now that we're 
there's so much they're like history is happening um but your book is obviously complete like do you want a part two um what is it that you feel like is 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 different in this conversation well you know life is different um the generations are definitely different this generation your generation and, and those coming up behind you are a lot more confident in themselves a lot more confident in their voice they're not taking no for an answer um, they're standing up and, and speaking out for what's right. Uh, you know, if you go back into the nineties and the and, and anything before that, there was still an uncertainty as to how to, uh, approach certain topics for not being penalized in some form or fashion or meaning blackballed or, you know, who knows? Um, and, and there was a, there was a certain tone depth of respect, uh, a different level of respect for what was at play as, a, as, a, as opposed to saying with this generation, I don't care what is in play right now, it's wrong and we're gonna change it. If we don't speak up, we can't change it. So it's not that the 90s and before weren't for change because obviously, you know, our, our civil rights leaders, you know, through the 60s changed for the next generation of the 70s, the Black Panthers changing, you know, to the 80s. So every decade we've had change and we've had leaders, but this is a whole different uh, arena right now that I'm experiencing and witnessing and, and applauding with our young people um, that are standing up for, for human rights. Mm. And when you think of a liberation dream for the the next couple of generations. What does that, what does the arena look like? And that arena being the boardroom, that arena being the tennis court, that arena being anywhere you feel most like yourself. Well, I think I, I that dream is equity. That dream, that dream is equity. It's transparency. Um, it's people allowing them allow being allowed to be authentic in their own selves and in their own truths, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, race, um, sexual preferences, all of these things are starting, I think, to start to gel and really starting to lock in step um, to where people are tired of saying, or people are saying enough is enough and tired of being pushed to the side and standing up front to be recognized for who they are because at the end of the day, we're all human. And we're all out here trying to succeed in our professions and, um, you know, and be our best selves. Hmm. So my last question, Kat, um, I'm realizing the importance of having these conversations about topics that before the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement were almost taboo to bring up. Um, but what do you think is the importance of having consistent conversations about social advocacy and the challenges we face on a daily basis? Well, the, important, the importance of it is that if we don't continue to talk about it, we can't change it. And the more we talk about it, the more the people that, who for whatever reason can't figure out why we are speaking up and speaking out, that maybe we're starting to change their thoughts and their minds as to how they're behaving um, and how they are processing things to move forward and, and make a difference. And so I don't see this conversation ending anytime soon. I think it's actually escalating. I think obviously with the election, 
um, it's going to be heightened even more. And we'll see, uh, you know, November 4th, what we're talking about and how we feel as a people can move forward and, and start to heal. Um, you know, we've been trying to heal for 400, 401 years right now. So um, as a community of Black people, and I think that, you know, obviously there's been progress um, from, from where we live, for the jobs we have, for the income that we make, you know, uh, et cetera. But, you know, equality is, uh, it's going to be hard to, to reach that, but we have to, we can't stop striving. Perfect ending.